Place in Time, a podcast from Historic America where, through storytelling, we transport you back in time to remarkable places and moments in American history. I'm your host, Aaron Killian. This is the final episode of a three-part series about the young life of American jazz legend Duke Ellington and the place where he grew up, Washington, D.C.'s U Street Corridor. In today's story, we'll travel with Duke as he navigates the music scene in Washington, D.C. at the dawn of the Jazz Age. Then, in today's interview, we'll talk with author, historian, and tour guide Garrett Peck about the musical venues that were part of Duke's world. But, for now, Duke's quest continues. The time is 1917, and our scene opens on a young man out for a drive, about to encounter an unexpected bend in the road. It was a four-passenger convertible coupe, a Chandler 6. Brand new, and the engine purred like a kitten. Its color hovered somewhere between royal and navy blue. When the sun hit the chassis just right, the whole car seemed to sparkle. At least Duke thought so. The best part, of course, was that he had bought it with his own money. The day had arrived when his best girl and new wheels would meet. It had been a banner year. And Duke took a moment to reflect as he drove his trophy over to Edna's house. His piano playing had created a nice startup fund. No longer in high school, Duke and a buddy launched a successful sign-painting business. With their highly visible storefront nearby the Howard Theater, folks from all over the city stopped by to commission posters, signs, and banners. His artistic talents with piano and paint were earning good money. So good that Duke turned down a scholarship to study art at the prestigious Pratt Institute in New York City. Why study when the art he was producing right now earned immediate cash? His favorite customers were those interested in advertising some sort of dance. Duke had a ready-made upsell. If they wanted a piano man, he'd ask if they needed signs. If they needed signs, he'd ask if they needed a piano man. A true one-stop shop. He grinned assuredly as he pulled up to Edna's house and honked the horn. She was already waiting for him. Just remember, Edward, You're blessed, he told himself. Walking hurriedly out her parents' front door, Edna sped down the walk toward the car, just as Duke scurried around the front to open the door. Retaking his spot behind the wheel, he released the parking brake at the exact moment Edna blurted, I'm pregnant. The girl did not mince words. There wasn't enough time, not if they wanted to make things right. Duke was stunned. The car rolled forward unchecked until Duke stomped on the brakes. Of all the girls that made eyes at Duke while he played the piano, she was certainly the prettiest. She also played the piano herself, perhaps another reason why Duke was drawn to her. Naturally, she wanted to teach music. It seemed everyone in Edna's family was an educator. Her mother was a classroom teacher, her father a principal. Even her aunts and uncles worked in the classroom. Their families had that in common, constantly striving for something more. Everyone was proud, Everyone wanted to present well and do right, because that was how U Street raised you. Still, the news came as a shock to Duke. Since when? he asked her. Since the bed broke down. Now, what are you going to do? Edna replied without blinking, her eyes large. They were married a month later. A banner year, indeed. 
The purchase of a house on Sherman Avenue was the next milestone, although Duke wasn't home much. During the day, Duke took a second job as a messenger at the Navy Department, housed in the big gray building right beside the White House. With the country at war, the building hummed with activity, much like Duke himself. At night, he worked the music venues along U Street and elsewhere in the city. Oftentimes, his gigs would go into the early morning hours. Edna was his wife, but music was his mistress, his greatest love. In truth, he was happiest at the piano. There, he felt blessed. That was home. A lot of the piano work came from the booking operation of Mr. Lewis Thomas. These gigs called for Duke to play ambient or underneath music for society events attended by white folks. While illegal champagne was sipped and hors d'oeuvres were served, Duke set the mood. Some days he played solo, other days he brought along his band, the Serenaders, which usually comprised the three Miller brothers who were serviceable accompaniment. But Duke soon upgraded with the addition of his U Street friends Toby and Arthur. The sound of Toby's sax and Arthur's trumpet were on another level. The missing piece was a strong drummer. On a particularly memorable evening, Mr. Thomas sent Duke to a millionaire's ball far out in Virginia at Ashland Country Club. They're going to pay you $100 a night. You keep 10 for yourself and come back here with the rest, Mr. Thomas told him. All the way out and all the way back, Duke couldn't help but think, $100 a night? Man, you need to get that. Duke returned the next day to give Mr. Thomas his money. He then took his meager percentage and ran straight to the telephone office. There, he placed his own ad in the phone book. Music for all occasions. Duke Ellington and his serenaders. It worked. Pretty soon, Duke wasn't just booking himself and his band. He was booking out other bands, too, and was doing a brisk business, just like Mr. Thomas. Duke quickly became a well-known personality in D.C. music circles. I'm beginning to catch on, Duke told Edna. I got a reputation so big now, I got to protect it. He knew he needed to strengthen the foundation of his band, the drums. His name was Sonny Greer, and he was so thin it looked like a strong wind might blow him over, which would have been a shame since he wore such a slick suit. He showed up in Frank Holliday's pool hall one day and began hustling. Not only was he slender as a cue stick, but he knew how to use one. One fateful evening, Sonny was in the act of soundly beating Duke's sax player, Toby, in a $5 game, when suddenly the band leader from the Howard Theater, the building just next door, came charging breathlessly into the pool room. Can anyone here play drums? He called out over the crack of balls on the tinkling piano. I got a show in a half hour, and my regular is sick. Sonny sank the eight and stubbed his cigarette out. I can play. Grabbing his coat to follow the band leader out the door, he shot Toby a look. You owe me five dollars. An intrigued Toby followed Sonny over to the Howard to watch the performance. He was amazed. With only a half hour's worth of prep, Sonny nailed it, with style to spare. He was a blur of twirling sticks and flashy tricks atop a tempo that never faltered. He was totally unfazed by the space. The Howard was one of the largest black showrooms in the country, with hundreds of people pouring in for every performance. This night had been no exception, and it looked like Sonny may as well have been playing a barn dance for all the concern on his face. 
Afterward, Toby approached him. Got my five dollars? Sonny asked. I got that and more, Toby replied. There's someone I want you to meet. The duo walked down U Street. The moon was high, and Toby knew that Duke was about to knock off after playing the late-night dance at True Reformer, the local community center. Once inside, they walked around the edge of the floor to reach the piano. All the dancers were doing a new move called Ballin' the Jack, and Duke was pounding the horse teeth with a pair of flourishing hands, a dapper bowler hat askew on his sweating forehead. Approaching Duke after the set, Toby could hardly restrain himself. Duke, this fella is named Sonny. You gotta hear him play the drums. Duke looked the natalie-clad beanpole up and down. Then he flashed a grin and stuck out his hand. I got a cousin named Sonny, but he plays baseball, not drums. Good to know you. Likewise, Sonny said. Duke cocked his head and tipped his hat. Nice suit. Sonny and Duke became like brothers. It was a lifetime friendship. Sonny's drums proved to be the missing ingredient to Duke's band. Plus, Sonny could talk a line of jive that laid folks low and kept everyone laughing. Duke loved it. Along with the addition of ace banjo player Elmer Snowden, Duke's band was complete. Battle of the band competitions were becoming increasingly popular, and Duke's serenaders became D.C. heavyweights. A favorite performance spot was Murray's Palace Casino, a brand new dance hall and music venue with seating for 1800 and a big red curtain over the stage which hung in Duke's memory ever after. During a particularly heated band battle, Duke's boys found themselves pitted against Blind Johnny's group and, as usual, it all came down to which band got the most cheers. Johnny ended up beating Duke that night, but Sonny paid attention. Ever the hustler, the next time the groups met, Sonny managed to stack the deck in favor of the serenaders by spreading the word beforehand. When the night of the battle arrived, the place was packed with Duke fans. They won in a landslide. Beyond the music, prohibition was also in the air. Often, in the smaller clubs and music joints, places where the owners had a better handle on who was in the crowd, everyone was lousy with illegal alcohol. Even the bands. Normally a quintet, Duke's serenaders would occasionally invite a sixth band member on stage. Namely, a gallon jug of corn whiskey set atop the piano. Duke and Sonny thought of themselves as champion drinkers, but no one ever gave them a medal. The usual reward was a few laughs and a hangover. Such behavior was common along U Street after dark, among people of all colors. Music was a universal language that drew folks from across the city, and white folks thought the scene was a great place to misbehave, as though God's flashlight wouldn't uncover them amongst the darker scenery. Industrial Cafe on G Street was the spot where the local musicians would head after the show. There, they would tell tales and stage impromptu jam sessions. Although there was a lot of big talk, very few musicians were actually big time. Everyone knew that New York City was the place to go if you wanted to take your shot. That's why Sonny fast became Industrial's champion storyteller. He had actually played in New York before his money ran out, like a ball player that had once gotten called up to the big leagues. He wanted to go back. Duke felt the pull, too. He and Sonny talked about it. Music was his blessing. He knew that now. 
but could it be realized here in D.C.? What if he took his chances in New York? Was it worth the risk? Could he make it big time? The Belasco Theater was, quite literally, a stone's throw away from the grounds of the White House, which, in and of itself, was not all that impressive to Duke. After all, during the day, he worked next door at the Navy Department. He still thought of himself as the D.C. Prince, whom Teddy Roosevelt had once watched play ball. What was impressive, however, was the big-name acts that played the Belasco. Duke made sure to get tickets when Leroy Smith's orchestra was in town. Ragtime was fading. Jazz was the new thing. Jazz had more improvisation, more texture, more everything. To Duke, it seemed that Leroy Smith's orchestra was everything. They had that new jazz sound, plus they were so well-dressed and well-rehearsed that you simply couldn't take your eyes or ears off them. The style, the poise, the sound that made the place come alive. It was like hearing Harvey Brooks's piano on summer vacation all over again, only multiplied. Still mesmerized by the memory of the previous night's performance, Sonny noticed Duke's distractedness as they sat down to play the Saturday night dance in Georgetown. What are you thinking about? Sonny asked. I'm thinking big time, Duke answered. Sonny responded with a knowing look. They began to play. Enclosed by a high fence on one side, the Georgetown Hall was intimate and partly open air. Close by, Duke could see kids peeking over the fence to watch all the fun, at a scene filled with pretty girls, bright lights, and blanketed overhead by stars. As he launched into a spirited version of Carolina Shout, Duke thought to himself, I guess I'd peek too. He gave the kids a wink. As the night wore on and the liquor flowed, a bunch of toughs who worked the canal decided to start a fight. It started as a rumble near the front door and quickly escalated into an all-out brawl which threatened to engulf the bandstand. The party was officially over. Duke and the boys had no interest in hanging around until the cops arrived, so they ran. As they hot-footed it down 29th Street, Duke began to outpace the rest. Usually such a fight would have ruined his mood, but in the moment, he felt oddly exhilarated, like he was running to rather than from something. He ran faster as a smile burst across his face. Behind him, Toby and Sonny drew even with each other and looked ahead at the distancing figure of Duke, an overdressed blur of elbows and knees. How far do you think he'll run? Toby asked. Harlem, Sonny laughed. Up ahead, Duke couldn't hear them. He thought of his mother. Her voice came to him. Edward, you don't have a thing to worry about. You are blessed. Postscript. To say that Duke found success in New York would be putting it mildly. Within a few years of relocating, Duke's band got a regular gig at the famed Cotton Club in Harlem. Eventually, CBS Radio installed recording equipment inside the club, and Ellington's sound was broadcast into every American home. By 1930, Duke was a megastar, and well on his way to becoming one of the most accomplished pianists, band leaders, and composers in American musical history.
Our guest on the podcast today is author, public historian, and tour guide Garrett Peck. As far as being an author goes, Garrett's got a bunch of titles to his credit. They include Walt Whitman in Washington, the Potomac River, Prohibition in Washington, the Great War in America, World War I and its aftermath, and then his most recent book, A Decade of Disruption. Now, some of Garrett's titles I actually have on my own shelf, and then I also mentioned Garrett as a tour guide. I have taken some of Garrett's tours, so I have sampled the wares of Mr. Peck, and he's good at what he does, and we're so excited to have him on the podcast uh, today. Garrett, thank you for being here. Thank you, Aaron. I appreciate your your, invitation. Oh, well, we were happy to uh, extend it, and it's a question I have for Garrett that doesn't really have to do with the topic today, but I'm interested if if you look at your your uh, list of titles that you've written, Garrett, it's pretty historically omnivorous. It seems like you've got a pretty wide appetite <laughs> yeah. for history, and you don't just focus in one particular area. How did you come to be such a historical omnivore, sir? <laughs> um, it probably helps actually not to be part of the academy. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I do have a master's degree, but I, I don't work for a university or anything like that. So I, I write where the spirit moves me, you know? So, <laughs> and history always interests me. And and it's really important, I, I do believe, since I was a little kid when I first learned about history, to, to study the history so we can understand who we are. So one of the things that really drew me to you in terms of seeking you out to be a, a guest on the podcast, uh, uh, Garrett, is a lot of the work that you've done researching sort of jazz history and African-American history in the U Street Corridor, which is obviously important for our Duke Ellington topic. And what we focused on a lot in this episode is the jazz scene on U Street and a lot of the venues where music was performed, the dance halls and the theaters. I wanted to ask you about the genesis of all this. How does U Street come to develop this thriving sort of dance hall, jazz performance venue scene? How does that come about? Yeah, it's it's so interesting. I I, I wrote uh, a a book, Prohibition in Washington, D.C., subtitle, How Dry We Weren't. (laughs) Uh, And, uh, when I when I wrote the book, I wanted to include one chapter about the African American experience during Prohibition itself, and I, I was really really stunned when I got into the research. About half of my time to research the book was that one chapter. Like wow. it, it was really really a challenge. It was archival research, and so even though I'm not an I'm not an academic, but I really did academic research trying to find thought leaders mm-hmm. and and so on, and how people responded to Prohibition, and of course Prohibition. The Great Migration, World War One, and jazz—all these things, all like a giant Venn diagram—they all come together right on U Street, right there in the Shaw neighborhood. So it's the perfect time. All these conditions all come together right there in 1916, and that leads mm-hmm. to jazz taking root in the Shaw neighborhood. Let's start with the Howard Theater. Howard yeah. Theater looms large on anybody's list oh, of yeah. important African American musical venues, not just in D.C. but in the country. Tell us a little bit about the Howard Theater and its history. Yeah, the, the Howard is, I, I would dare say, the single most important black cultural institution of this era. It's really, really, really important. And it gets established in 1911. It's actually owned by a white management company, but it's always black managed. And uh, it opens up and it becomes the go-to place for African-American performers to perform all around the, who come from all around the country to perform there. And considering as well, a year later opens up the American League Stadium, better known as Griffith Park. Griffith Stadium, where the uh, uh, where the Washington Nationals play the Senators, and so you sort of have this one-two punch: two big, very major venues opening up within a year of each other on the eastern end of U Street, and that what that's what anchors U Street as an entertainment district, and thus it also then attracts in all the jazz clubs once they start opening up in the 1920s. 
So the, so the Howard is enormously important, and it's really a who's who of black performers over the years who have performed there. Um, Duke Ellington, of course, came there dozens of times, and these weren't just like individual performances every time he was there for a week. So it's just, just incredible. You know, you've had Ike Turner and Tina Turner both performing there, Tina Turner mm-hmm. without Ike. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, Dizzy Gillespie, and so on. You know, the Chuck Brown Band this has long been the house band at the Howard Theater. So... It's an institution that go, dates back to well over a century, and it's enormously important for its influence of the jazz scene in D.C. It's interesting, too, Garrett, that it, it really does sort of chart the, the course of sort of black musical, black popular musical history, right, from that mm-hmm. sort of jazz ragtime era all the way up through the present day. And what's cool about it is it still exists. You can still go to the yeah. Howard Theater and see shows. You can't say that for some of the other venues that we've spoken about here, but the Howard, you still can, which yeah. is great. You know, So when you go there, you're experiencing African-American musical history, musical history writ large. In addition to the uh, the Howard Theater, we talked about other theaters that no longer exist, performance venues that no longer exist. Um, one of them being Murray's Casino, which I, I know today is a, a CVS, at least the bottom floor is a CVS. Yeah, this was actually a print shop owned by the Murray's brothers. So, you know, they, they printed out, you know, wedding invitations, booklets, books, all, all that stuff. And it's a fairly large building. So they had all this extra space. And so hence downstairs, they had the, the print shop and then with the upstairs, they were like, well, what do we do with this? And so they had the great idea of turning it into a dance hall. And <laughs> that's, they opened up, you know, so sort of <laughs> like, like uh, uh, you know, during the daytime, you have the regular business at the nighttime, you've got the, the bands coming in and performing. And one of the really cool things I found when I was doing my research was <laughs> finding in the Library of Congress a picture of a very young Cab Calloway performing mm. in January of 1933 at Murray's Palace Casino. This is a guy who had just a storied career. It's incredible. Here he is. Mm-hmm. I think he's like 27 years old in this photo. And, you know, he's very famous, of course, for Mindy, the song Mindy the Moocher, which he performs in, in um, the Blues Brothers in, what, 1977? Yep. <laughs> so, you know, we're talking 45 years later after I found this photo. I mean, he's still out there performing. He performed all the way into his 80s. It's just, it's incredible. The, uh, the final venue that I wanted to ask you a little bit about, Garrett, it's the first place where Duke Ellington actually got paid to perform. He, he made, uh, he got 75 cents yeah. for playing the piano <laughs> over at uh, the True Reformers. What was True Reformers all about? Yeah, the True Reformer building essentially was a community center building. So mm-hmm. any, any type of you know, public venue, they could have concerts, they could have basketball games, et cetera. So it, it, it was a really interesting place. I mean, you might think of it as like a YMCA. Mm-hmm. In that sense, it was a multi-purpose space, and and yeah, he was thrilled the very first time he had he put together his band for the first time and performed, got paid that seventy-five cents, and ran home and told his mother he got paid. You know, and of course, <laughs> you fast forward to years later, he's this multi-millionaire. But like, yeah. this is really where he he gets started. We we kind of laugh at seventy-five cents, but like, hey, we all start somewhere, you know. So the next thing I wanted to transition into, Garrett, was asking you about um, if you went to one of these venues. I know the venues are different, right? Going to see a show at Murray's might be a little bit different than going to see a show at the Howard might draw a different crowd. But in general, are there things that we can talk about in terms of what the atmosphere would have been like in these venues? What, what would it be like if I'm an audience member and I'm going inside one of these venues to see a, a performance? Are there, there, there things that you can tell us? Sure. And, and, and the, the venues themselves, of course, were vastly different in size. You know, mm-hmm. if you consider a place uh, like Bohemian Caverns, which could maybe hold 90 people downstairs in that really cool cave-like room, 
That's sure, Bohemian really... Caverns being the, that, that venerable jazz club that's yeah. on there on U Street uh, as well. More intimate venue, right? Y- yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. So you're super close to the, to the performers. And, mm-hmm. and um, it's an amazing experience being able to be up close and personal. And you, 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 you feel the music and you're with the crowd and whatnot. Um, and then, of course, the other, the other end of the, of the pole is uh, the Howard Theater, which can hold you know, 1,200 people. It's quite mm-hmm. large. And when you have a big band of people out there and people are out there dancing and whatnot it's 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 a different experience uh, both equally fun so yeah. we have that really that that gamut of the based on the club sizes and the types of of, of bands that can perform and, and whatnot what is i think so interesting about especially in the 1920s um u street in the shaw neighborhood gets this name as the secret city yes because it's prohibition is going on and we also have jim crow law so we have separate institutions for the black community than from the white community. So in the, and the black community is about a quarter of the city's size overall at that time. Mm-hmm. And so whatever happens in the black community isn't reported on in the press. And thus what you see is that white people come from all over the city to misbehave in Shaw. They come, they come to all the jazz clubs to hang out and whatnot. It's a very multi-ethnic, multi-racial audience. At the same time, that doesn't work the other way. You know, because of Jim Crow law, African-Americans have to stay in their own neighborhood. They're not allowed to go to white clubs elsewhere in the city. So, but that's the racism of, of the time. And hence the secret city aspect, that it was yeah. safe for white people to go to Shaw to misbehave and it wouldn't get reported on in the newspapers. Something that I know it's a subject that's near and dear to your heart about prohibition in Washington, D.C. Yeah. If you look at Ellington's timeline, during the time that he's performing in D.C., prohibition is also in place. And and Duke, you know, he liked to imbibe. There's stories about him having like a jug of whiskey up behind the piano. And then, you know, he and his buddies would take some swigs during the course of the performance. And oftentimes the jug would be done by the time the performance was <laughs> over. But so we, we know he liked to imbibe. But uh, I was just curious to ask you, like, what did the intersection of prohibition and all these musical venues look like? Yeah, I, I, I have this one great observation, which is basically that jazz is the soundtrack to prohibition. Mm-hmm. And you, you think about this, you know, uh, wherever you have a jazz club, there's going to be alcohol, you know, because people sure. want to have a cocktail. You know, and and so the jazz clubs basically have to negotiate how do they do this without getting into trouble. You know, obviously they're breaking the law, but they don't want to get caught. And so, and so one of the things that they do is they they generate. Uh, it becomes about risk management. So, for example, if you went to Bohemian Caverns, City Caverns at the time, sure. and uh, the waiter comes by and you are a citizen in the know and you say, and you ask, what's your preference? And you say, Oh, I would like a setup. So it's the kind of the code word there, you know? <laughs> so he comes right back and brings you sometimes a high, it's a highball glass, but other times it's going to be a coffee mug or a teacup with, <laughs> with some ice and some ginger ale. And then another person comes by a little bit later on and asks, so what's your preference? And you say, I'd like to buy a, a flask of gin or a flask of, of scotch. So then you mix your own drink. And the point of this is they've, they've actively been reducing the risk by having two different people handle this. So in case the person carrying the alcohol gets caught, the owner can say, that's not my employee. I don't know who that person is. I don't condone drinking in my club. So <laughs> this is a way for the clubs to basically sort of get around the question of in case they get caught that, hey, it wasn't me selling the booze. It was that person. So that person, of course, has to then take the fall. I wanted to speak uh, speak to you about Garrett, and I was hoping you could shed some light on this because one of the things that Duke Ellington 
did, failed to do, I guess you could say, in his uh, memoirs and in his later reminiscences, reminiscences, is that he never talked much about the serious racial upheaval that took place in his neighborhood post-World War I in the form of these race riots that, that, that take place and how they get clamped down on very viciously. I was wondering, could you talk about what exactly this event was, or, you know, what spurred it, and how it would have impacted Duke's community? And since he wasn't able to tell us about it or chose not to tell people about it, what can you tell us about it? Yeah. This has been referred to as, as the Red Summer. And there's actually a really good book about this by Cameron McWhorter called The Red Summer. And uh, it deals with the race riots that break out in 25 cities all around the country as a consequence of World War I. So I think 450,000 African-Americans served in the military during World War I. And they came back and with the expectation that the country would treat them more decently for the fact that they served our country. And all around the country, you saw the, especially white Southerners sprung into action to basically challenge the black community over claims of fairness. And so every single case, including in Washington, D.C., it was the white community attacking the black community to essentially try to put the black community back in its place. And we saw that in D.C. We had a four-day race riot that broke out in July of 1919 um, over some fake news. This, the, the, it got reported that a woman was sexually assaulted when, in fact, she wasn't. But uh, instantly there was a white mob ready to go defend her honor. And they went down to Southwest, which was at that time a white, uh, sorry, a black working-class neighborhood. And they went down there to go beat up people. And then they decided they were going to move up to the north, up to the Shaw neighborhood, which was black middle class, black upper class, and go wreck all the businesses and beat people up and so on. And what happens is that many of the young black veterans come out onto the street and they barricade the street. Some of them wear their uniforms. And so very close to uh, on 7th Street and on New Jersey Avenue, they place these barricades. And uh, so very close to the Howard Theater, that's where they draw their line. And they defend their neighborhood from this white mob that's advancing up into their, into their neighborhood. And they basically stop this mob. This goes on for four days. It's just incredible. Um, President Wilson, who's just gotten back from the Paris Peace Conference, is, uh, I think, in a bit of denial. He doesn't do anything for a number of days. And he finally calls out the Army and the Marines, and they send out a detachment to help out uh, to, to put down the uprising. Even that doesn't help. The, the final thing that sends everyone home is a ginormous thunderstorm. Everyone gets drenched and everyone runs home. And that, that ends the, the race riot of 1919 in D.C. Four days. Overwhelmingly, the people who were arrested were African-Americans rather than white people who were inflicting all the violence. How do you like this for a segue, uh, uh, Garrett, is that it seems that these uh, riots uh, were a great disruption and your new book, right, that has just hit the shelves, it is so hot uh, that it's literally steaming. It's, it's a decade <laughs> of disruption um, and it's called A Decade of Disruption, colon, America in the New Millennium. What's your book about? Cool. Uh, it's a history of the controversial decade that we all live through. Uh, 2000 to 2010. So it's really bookended by the dot-com meltdown and then the Great Recession on the other end and then all those other disruptive things that happened in between. You know, so W getting elected, uh, 9-11, the Iraq War, Hurricane Katrina, um, how, how disruptive the internet has been, for example, to so many different business models and, and even for information and, and disinformation and misinformation. So, um, and of course, we're living through another hugely disruptive time here at this moment. Sure. both with the pandemic and, of course, with the, with the Black, Lives, Black Lives Matter protests going on right now and the question of a racial justice. I mean, all these things are disruptive um, in both good and bad ways. 
Well, Garrett, I want to thank you so much for uh, for being here today. Thank you for your insight. Thank you for your stories. And uh, we hope to have you back again. Thanks so much, Aaron. And uh, thank to all the listeners for tuning in today. As we wrap up, if you'd like to hear my full interview with Garrett Peck, it can be found on the podcast section of our Historic America webpage. That's it for today. Once again, many thanks to Garrett Peck for being our guest, and thank you for listening. Until next we meet, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast, and make sure to leave us a review. We also wouldn't be mad if you shared us on social media with your friends, family, and casual acquaintances. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you want to learn more about Historic America, visit www.historicamerica.org. We've got a great menu of historic walking tours, including a Washington, D.C. music and murals experience, which chronicles the story of Duke Ellington through street art. In our next episode, we transition to a different place in time. The setting is Maryland, 1862. The Battle of Antietam has become the bloodiest single day of combat during the Civil War. It is a landscape turned red. As the smoke settles, a nearsighted photographer will visually chronicle the devastation, forever changing the civilian's perspective and connection to war, imagery seared into the national consciousness.